morning. This morning is Communion Sunday. This morning we're going to remember a good, good husband. Esposo. A loving father, papi. A grandfather, abuelo. A great-grandfather, bisabuelo. An uncle, tío. A pastor, a mentor, a brother, a friend, a man who loved his neighbor, who loved his family, but he loved his God more, a man who desired that his family and all his loved ones would know the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus that loved him and saved him, a man that desired that the church would be the church. The church would be the ambassador of God. The church would let the world know about the Savior who loves them and gave his life for them. In the very morning that Pastor Victor went went home to paradise, the very morning he went to collect his crown of righteousness, he shared with a chat group the very words that the Apostle Paul spoke to his beloved son Timothy just before Paul was about to go home before the Lord. Pastor Victor posted these words. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I mean, you have to wonder, did he know? Did he know what was about to happen? Did did he know he was going to be with the Lord? But I, I can tell you for sure, Paul did. Paul did. Now, here's the thing. Paul didn't share those words with Timothy just because he knew what was about to happen. He wasn't just telling Timothy, hey, my time's over, I'm going. He shared those words with Timothy because he was passing the mantle on. He was saying, it's, I have finished what I have come to do. It's your turn. Listen to it in the context. Here's what he says. He says this in in 2 Timothy 4 in the first verse. He says, I, Paul, charge you, Timothy, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing, by his coming kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete patience in teaching. And he goes on in verse 5. He says, as for you, be sober-minded, Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering and my time of departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's a crown for me of righteousness that's laid up and I'm going to get it. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award that to me on that day and not only to me, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. For the Apostle Paul, for Pastor Victor, they've fought the good fight. They've finished the race. They've kept the faith. They're standing ready for their crown of righteousness. But for us, we've been charged 
We've been charged to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to be sober-minded, to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill our ministry. We are called to fight the good fight. We are called to run the race. We're called to keep the faith. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a bit of a long story this morning. It's the story of Nick Ripkin. I suggest if you haven't read the book, Insanity of God, get the book or watch the movie. But this is a story about fighting the good fight, running the race, and keeping the faith. Nick Ripkin is not his real name. He's worked for the last 30-some years among the persecuted church. So he's, he's, his name is a pseudonym. And what I'm about to, to give you describes the events that led him and his wife Ruth to spend years among the, the, the persecuted church. He was saved at the age of 18 years old at night in a cheese factory. He had not even read the Bible, the full Bible, all the way through. And he said, I know I'm going to live my life. I'm going to preach the gospel. And so he goes to Bible school. And at Bible school, he meets Ruth, the love of his life, and marries her. I love what he says. Nick says, we were both PKs. She was a preacher's child. I was a pagan child. After pastoring for a few years, learning how to live together, starting a family, God calls them to the mission field. So they find themselves in Malawi, in in southeastern Africa, in the mission field. Miraculously, they begin to share the gospel, and hundreds begin to come. The the fruit of the ministry was amazing, and they fell in love with Malawi, and they said, Lord, if this is where you want us the rest of our lives, we love this people. They, They love us. They're just blessed of all the fruit that they are doing. And in 1985, in a period of four months, they came down with malaria ten times. Their sons came down with it five times, and the Irish Catholic doctor that was treating him walks up to him and says, Nick, do you want to see Jesus? He says, of course I want to see Jesus. He says, if you don't leave the country, you're going to see him real soon. So they're seated around the table and their leadership agrees with the doctor and says, serving God is not a matter of location, it's a matter of obedience. It's not about going to Malawi. It's about obeying him where he's called you. So Ruth cries out and says, Lord, why would you bring us here? Why would you fill us with this love for these people? Why would you do all of this work and move us on? How could there be so much fruit and yet you've called us somewhere else? And God reminded him, it's not, God gives the fruit. We're called to obey. So they move, they pray, they move, they go to South Africa, and they go right into the black homelands, right into the crossroads of apartheid, deep institutional racism where, where against those who are black and non-white. And daily people are asking them, why, why are you here? And they say it was a perfect open door. They were here to share the gospel in six or seven years of fruitful sharing the gospel bringing people to Christ. And during that time, they read the book of Acts and God redefines to them what it means to be a missionary. And they say, for as a missionary, I need to go to some place where people have little or no access to Jesus. And I need to give them total access to Jesus. So with a burden to reach somebody with no access to Jesus in the early 1990s, praying with their leadership, they moved to Nairobi, Kenya because as, a, as to set up a base because they're going into war-torn Somalia. And they're trying to figure out how to get into Somalia. They're trying to, to, to understand how can they help this people. And, and Nick 
uh, supernaturally discovers that there's a Red Cross plane about to go in. And he tells it this way. He, was, uh, for, he is uh, coming for the shock of his life. He says, I took off out of Nairobi, Kenya in the New Testament, and I land in Somaliland in the Old Testament. There was no water, there was no food, there was no electricity, there was no hope. There were landmines everywhere and people were being shot for no reason. He said, it was like I had flown into hell. He heard a truck convoy coming into town. He thought, oh great, there's some relief. And lo and behold, what's he see? Trucks coming in with 50 caliber machine guns welded to them. And instead of bringing food and medicine, they're throwing packages of cotton a drug for the people to chew, 50 times more powerful than amphetamines. And the starving people are in a drugged-out stupor. For the next three to four years, he works with the UN, he works with relief organizations, he sets up his own small NGO with a Muslim staff, and he's seeking to bring some light, some hope, some relief in the midst of all of this war. And every step forward seemed like two steps back. Every time he tried to bring life somewhere, what he was confronted with was death. He'd go and bring food and, 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 and medicine into a place, and they would ask him for cloth, more than food, so they could bury their dead. When he came into the country, there were 150 believers. At the end of his time, every single one of them had been hunted down and systematically killed by extremist Muslims. He had four dear, dear Somali believers who were, uh, uh, Somali friends who were believers, four of them. And, and just before it was his time it was over, all four of them were shot in the head. Not a single believer from 1991 to 2013, not a single one who was killed, did we know where their bodies are. They were all hidden. No one was allowed to grieve them. After losing his closest friends, instead of having a quiet time with the Lord, Nick has a loud time with the Lord, he says. He says, these people, Lord, these radical Somali Muslims, they're killing everyone who loves you, all that you love. Lord, like an Old Testament prophet, he said, I, it's time to take them out. They are evil incarnate. These people are not worthy of the blood of Jesus. And immediately the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, neither are you. And he said, how dare you, God, compare me to these, these, these killers, these who are killing your people. And the Holy Spirit, no, you're right. Spoke to him and said, no, you're right, you're worse. You have had total access to Jesus for the first 18 years of your life. You cursed me. You lived completely immoral life. You did things that were horrible in the kingdom of God. And you had total access to Jesus. And you walked away. Yet I hunted you down in, the, in a factory in the middle of the night at the age of 18. He says, how dare you ask me to kill a people group who for 2,000 years no one would come to tell them about Jesus. No one gave them the chance to make the choice between good and evil. No one told them a better story. Brokenhearted. Broken before the Lord. Preparing to leave. Nick goes back to Nairobi, Kenya, his, his base. 
and he's there in, in, in his home base where his family lived in, in, in Nairobi, Kenya. So he traveled into Somalia from there. He says, and, and, and this ter- the, the unthinkable happens while he's there. There's a torrential downpour that comes on his house, and this house is leaking. And the water's coming through all the leaks in the house, and the dormant mold spores in the house become alive and fill the air with mold. And their son, Timothy, who had a history of asthma, who hadn't had an attack in over a year, goes into complete asthma arrest. They rush him to the hospital, and they're unable to save him. And a couple of weeks later, they bury him on Easter morning. Burying their son, Timothy, they understood that there's no resurrection without crucifixion. So there was a pouring, there was an outpouring from the church, from the community who were pouring their loves and their lives into them in this time of loss, in this time of grief. Immediately after Timothy died, he called on the shortwave radio and he talked to, to Hussein. This was his Muslim friend, the chief of staff of his staff in Mogadishu. And he told, and he told Hussein, he says, Hussein, my son Timothy has just died. And he thought maybe there was a problem with the radio because Hussein is a, was a gregarious person, always talking, full of life, yet the radio was dead. There was nothing. He, maybe there was something went wrong with the radio. Meanwhile, a steady stream of people from the community were knocking on their door. They were bringing their love. They were bringing their support. About five days later, there's a knock on the door. And thinking nothing of it, people have been knocking all the time. Nick opens the door and standing there, dirty, ragged, almost starved, smelling like a goat, is Hussein. Hussein, where'd you come from? Hussein wells up and he says, I walked all the way from Mogadishu to Nairobi, Kenya to bury our son, Timothy. He laid down that microphone on that day and he started walking straight to Kenya from Mogadishu. He walked through minefields. He had ridden a camel. He rode in the back with goats. He crawled through war zones where clans were fighting five days without food and water. And at the funeral, completely unaware of cultural protocols, this Muslim man sits directly between Nick and his wife Ruth at the funeral of their son. And this Muslim man sitting there watching as his older brother stands up with the choir and they're worshiping the Lord, singing praises to the Lord as they're grieving, they're worshiping God. He watches as Ruth's brother stands up and delivers the message of the gospel so clearly that he hears and knows that this young man who passed away, died physically, is in the presence of Christ. He is in paradise. He watches as almost 30 people give their lives to Jesus in the midst of this funeral. And his head is spinning around, not understanding what he's seeing. And again, breaking culture, he reaches over and grabs uh, Ruth's hand, and he grabs Nick's hands, and he puts them together. He wraps his hands around both his collar, his calloused hands around both this, this, this sunburnt, calloused Somali man begins to cry with them and weep with them and grieve with them and experience the resurrection. A few weeks later, Nick travels back to Mogadishu for the last time to say goodbye to his Muslim staff, 10 to 15 Muslims. And in keeping with culture, he says, listen, I need to say this to all of you staff. Thank you. Thank you for sending Hussein as your representative to the the, uh, the uh, funeral. 
As culture would have it, Hussein stands up and he, reply, he relates all the details, everything. The five days of travel, the thirst, the hunger, the crawling, the minefields, the camel, the goats. It's as though the staff were there with him making the journey. But then he says, he looks at all the staff and he says, begins to relate all the details of the funeral. And in Nick's heart, he's saying, no, don't do this. They're not It's not going to be well for you to tell him. And he says, why is it? Hussein talking to the staff says, why is it when we die, we don't know where we're going? Why is it then when when Somalis die, when Muslims die, we have to wait for paradise to see if we're 51% good? Why is it while we're crying, while they're crying over their son, while they're broken by his death, they're also laughing and they're celebrating? Because mama and papa, that's what he called the Ripkins, they knew Their hearts were broken. Their son had died, but he was with Jesus. He is in paradise. Why do Christians get to know where they go when they die and Muslims don't? And Nick is thinking to himself, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you for saying this. And then he looks straight at Nick and he says, why have you Christians kept Jesus to yourselves. And he's thinking the staff is going to hang him. And then the entire staff looks at him and says, why have you done this? Why have you done this? Why, if there's this truth about eternal life, this truth about being in Christ, this truth about loving your enemies, this truth about turning the other cheek, if you had this, why have you kept it to yourself? They asked him. Right now, we have brothers and sisters all over this world. Pastor Terry prayed for them. I hope you were praying with him. All over this world who are being persecuted because of two things. They have embraced the Lord Jesus. And they have refused to keep him to themselves. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that so many of the places we're sending our young men and our young women to die in the military are places the church has refused to go? What could have happened? All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Here's a fact. 90% who are born in the church, raised in the church, 90% who are born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married in the church, buried in the church, never share their faith with another person. You know what the answer is? Fight the good fight. Run the race. Keep the faith. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Keep the faith. So what is this fight that we're fighting? What is this fight? Can I tell you? It's not a fight for our lives. We've been given new life. 
Listen to Paul talking to the Corinthians. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you have freedom? Then the fight's not for you. We're fighting for the ones of those who are blinded by the eyes, of the, blinded eyes by the evil one. That's what the fight is for. Listen to Paul. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what does fight the good fight mean? It means be an ambassador. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, it doesn't say if pastors and evangelists, especially anointed Christians. It says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all has been made new. Is that what you have? There are people around us dying every day who don't. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did he give you the gift of salvation? Then he gave you the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There is a path to forgiveness. There is a path to freedom. You don't have to eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and boomerang. Every time they do you, you do them. There's forgiveness. There's freedom. And trusting to us the message Jesus did the work. He's just given us the message. That's it. Are we fighting for their lives? Are we wanting God to take their lives out? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why did Jesus come? Why, what, what could be so serious? Think about it. Think about it. What could be so serious that the infinite, eternal word of God himself would willingly leave his place of glory, take on the finite form of lowly human flesh in order to die a gratuitous, malicious, horrible, evil death? Except that without that, there is no other path to life. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. Jesus said this, why did I come? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, when he says lost, he doesn't mean misplaced, he means doomed. I, I'm like, it's not like losing our keys. So Jesus, how? How, Jesus? How are you going to do this? How are you going to seek and save the lost? How are you going to find them, Jesus? They're doomed. 
Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I love this. You know what Nick Ripkin said, this quote, I love this. He says, the longer you're in Christianity, the more we're like sheep among sheep, not sheep among wolves. Are you looking for wolves? Are you running for wolves so you can hide amongst the sheep? I know somebody might say, but you know, I, I, I'm, you know, that it's just not my gift. I'm going to give you some practical ways that you can be sheep among wolves. Right here, every single one of us, here's a few practical ways every single one of us can fight the good fight and be sheep among wolves. I remember the day, I don't know, it was 12, 15 years ago. I remember the day when I, remember, when I looked at myself and it said, all I am is a sheep among sheep. That's all I am. I am not out there. I don't know what it's like. And I decided I've got to find a way to get into the world and be amongst the world. And that's the day I decided to start going to boot camp. That's the day I decided to go. There is a local correctional facility where people need Jesus. I can go and stand. I can preach the word. I can pray with somebody. I can hold their hands. I can learn how to do that. Let me tell you, way number one is get some training. When I first started talking to people, I didn't know any more than you knew. I was scared to death. We, we were knocking on doors, going to people's houses, knocking on doors, just to tell them the church was there. Just to say, hey, if you need a church, here's a church. My heart was pounding in my chest. My mouth was dry. I didn't know what to say. And I got paired with a guy who was always telling a testimony about when he had a chance to share Jesus with somebody. And I said, perfect. I get to walk up to the front door with this guy. I get to stand back and watch him do it. We walk up to the first house. We climb the steps. We, knock, we go to knock on the door. And right before we knock on the door, he leans over to me and says, you know, this really makes me uncomfortable, so you do all the talking. Wait, what? I, I said, yeah, if there's a new church, and yeah, you can come. No one's born knowing what to say. But I'm telling you, there are more resources out there to learn than you can imagine. Number two, find a place to serve. When I found myself 10, 15 years ago, and I realized that I wasn't in the world serving, I said, I have to find a place. What beats your heart? What evil is going on in the world you want to see changed? Find that place and bring the gospel to it. Serve. Number three. I have a really good friend, a coworker who we just, who just went home to be with the Lord two weeks ago. A good, good man. He was part of a country church that didn't have a pastor and they invited another uh, friend of ours to come and to be the pastor of this church. And this friend of mine who passed away, he went to that pastor. He said, listen, I have a list. I have a list of people who used to come to this church, people that I know who don't know Jesus. And I'm not very good at talking to them. I don't know how to do it. And you are. We're going to go see them. I'm telling you right now, if you come to any one of the pastors of this church, and I can name some others as well, and you say, I'm not very good at talking, I don't know how to talk, will you go with me? We will go with you. You got somebody you need to talk to and don't know how, we'll come alongside of you. Because you have the relationship. Number four, 
you can walk up and down your neighborhood and pray. There's a very simple ministry. You can go down door by door by door and just pray. Just pray over them. And then you can take a hanger and put it on their door. One door at a time, maybe once a week, maybe twice, twice a week. And you put that door on there and say, I have just prayed for you. If you have a prayer need, call me at. God will work miracles. You can be an inviter. There are people here who are inviters. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to do it. They say, but hey, you got to hear this guy. you got to hear this lady. you got to see this. Here's what you need to do is you need to realize what Jan Stewart told me many, many years ago. Jan Stewart is another dear, dear friend of mine who went home way too soon. And I was working at John S. Wilson Company, and, and turns out we had a common friend at that place. And she said, you're working with him? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, that's amazing. I've been praying for someone to come into his life. I've been praying for the Lord to bring someone to his life. And I went, I have the answer to the prayer. You're the answer to somebody's prayer. You're the answer to somebody's prayer. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Paul says to Timothy, no soldier gets entangled in in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. How do we do that? How do we do that? Jesus said, if you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What is your cross? Are you bearing that cross for Jesus? What is your cross? Right now, for many of us, it's deep grief and loss. For some, it's an illness or an injury. It's the loss of a job. It's, it's financial or legal strain. It's the floundering of souls of loved ones. It's a broken relationship. It's abuse in your past. Maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's a perpetual fight against temptation. I don't know what your cross is, but Jesus says this, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our aim is Jesus. Run the race, looking to the author, looking to him. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Learn from me, he says. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. You will find rest. Rest for your soul in me. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. And keep the faith. I was on a job site one day. As it is, I know no one here ever has a bad day. This, this particular one, I had worse than a bad day. The truck driver didn't do what I told him to do. A truck gets stuck. The brick can't be delivered. Nothing's going the way that I want, and I lost it. I started yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs and trying to make everything right by my power and my will, just flesh spewing everywhere. 
And there was a pastor on the site who happened to be one of the men I respected most in all the world. That made it worse. And the Holy Spirit came on me. And I went and helped this guy dig out. And then I'm walking around the site and all the guys on the site, yeah, you told him, man, you told him. And I had to repent to every single person. And then the pastor comes walking towards me. And I'm like, here it comes. Double barrel. He's from New York. He had the best New York accent. It was awesome. He said, it is with much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. If we're going to keep the faith, we got to know that it's through tribulation. Paul said this to Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying. If you died with him, we will also live with him. We get that. We understand that. He died for us. We receive him. We have his new life. If we endure, we also reign. We get that. If I endure in him, if I press through, there will be victory in my life, even in the darkest, hardest times. If we deny him, he will also deny us. I get that. How can you deny the king of glory laying his life down for you? If we are faithless, oh no. What is he going to say? I've been faithless so many times. Because he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Keep the faith. Fight the fight. Run the race. Keep the faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by all of those who have gone before us, by my friend Jan Stewart, by my friend Doug Welsh, by our beloved Pastor Victor, by the Apostle Paul. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Keep the faith.